Welcome to the Lady Landlords Podcast, where we empower women to gain financial freedom through real estate investing. I'm your host, Becky Nova, founder of Lady Landlords. If you're ready to buy, manage, and grow your real estate investing portfolio, then let's get started. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Lady Landlords Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with Jennifer Butcher from Go Mortgage all about those numbers that are going to be important if you are taking loans to buy your investment property. So Jennifer, welcome to the show today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to share. Yeah. So first thing that I always like to start out with on our show is really just letting our members get to know you, the woman behind what you do professionally. So would you mind just introducing who you are to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I am Minnesota native, grew up in northern Minnesota. I absolutely love the outdoors. Anytime I can be outside, I love it. Even in the winter when it's freezing cold here. I have two kids, 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son who are both very active in sports, uh, basketball, hockey, baseball. So most of my extra time, if I have any, is usually spent in a basketball court or an ice arena and chasing them and getting them to and from sports. And in an extra, extra free time, my husband and I enjoy hiking and like I said, anything outdoors. So that's interesting because I base my entire life around being in a place where it's not cold. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, land of 10,000 lakes, it's absolutely gorgeous. But yes, if you're, if you're not a fan of the cold, I definitely recommend June until now, like September. <laughs> that's about it. Okay. That's <laughs> actually much longer than I thought. Well, thank yeah. you. Thanks for going through that and just sharing a little bit about your family. So. Yeah. mortgage broker. How did you end up there? Was that because that's not usually a profession that little kids are like, hey, I can't wait to grow up to do this. So was this something that no. you felt direct on the path or did you fall into this? I completely fell into it. It's kind of a funny story. So I graduated with a criminology psychology degree, which kind of comes into play with what I do now, putting a lot of pieces together. But I decided right out of college, I actually wanted to get more into sales. And I was doing more outside business to business sales. And my my now husband, but then boyfriend, kind of jumped right. He was finance economics major, kind of fell right into mortgages. And I would hear him at night speaking to clients and just about saving money and how much he was impacting them and helping them buy homes. And I was just like, I feel like I want to touch people's lives closer, right? Like I want to have a little bit more of an impact. And so there was an opening at the company at the time. And he was like, you should do this. And I thought he was crazy because I just thought working together was a really bad idea. And here we are 21 years later. We yeah. still work for the same company. We run our branch and we are still married. So it worked, it worked out. It clearly did. But that is also a big risk to have happened. I have to ask just because we have so many women in our Lady Landlords community that also invest with their partners. Yes. What is your best piece of advice for not only working, but then living and loving your partner? You just have to draw boundaries, right? Like I have to sometimes cut it off and just say, okay, we're not, we're not talking about work right now or, and we're investors as well. So, uh, you know, we kind of set a time for this is when we're analyzing things with regard to investment. And now it's family time and we're on to this. So we just have to kind of set and schedule time um, and then make sure you stick to those boundaries. So I like that being able to really compartmentalize and say, hey, this time we're going to yeah. use this. And then, hey, that's kind of over. Now we're in other topic. So, 
Yeah, that's important for sure. So what is your favorite thing about working in mortgages? Honestly, like sitting at the closing table, I think especially the people who didn't think that they could be there and it Mm -hmm. took a little bit of work to get them there. So whether it was a first time home buyer who never thought they would own a home or a first time investor who didn't think investing was possible and they are so excited to start that path and know that their future is going to be different now because of this avenue that's going to help them build wealth. It's just, that's my favorite part. At the table, success, we closed, yay. Right. I think that's actually everybody at that table's favorite part. Definitely my favorite part too. So at what point do you recommend to an investor to reach out and connect with a lender? I would say sooner than later, right? I, I don't think it's ever too early to just analyze goals and what you would maybe want to do or hope to do and have a strategy in place for making that happen. So whether it is making sure that your credit score is high enough to qualify for the loans that you need to, uh, whether it's looking at tax returns and saying, okay, in order to qualify for these types of properties that you're interested in, this is what kind of income that we need to be able to show, or these are the types of properties and cash flow that we need to be looking for. And then, you know, obviously assets in terms of like, this might be the amount of money involved. What plan can we put into place to make sure that you're able to save or have have those funds without being a detriment to your lifestyle now? So I'd say sooner than later, make a put right. a plan in place. And it's not happening for a year, but at least you have that plan in place. And I've talked to, you know, an expert on how to get there. I find that so important because I feel like a lot of investors are like, well, I have to have a deal, right? I have to find the deal that I want before even kind of going through that path, or I have to really be financially ready. And I feel like this not only falls into that category with realtors and brokers, but also often with like financial advisors, where it's like, well, I clearly need to have the money before I can go talk to them. And it's like, but you need to know what your targets are and what you're even shooting for. So if somebody came to you, and said, hey, next year, 2024, I would like to buy property. What should I What should I even be aiming for? What should I be looking for? What would your recommendation to them be? Yeah, I would, again, compartmentalize it and say, okay, where's your credit at? Is there anything that you need to do to maximize your credit score that you're going to, so you're going to qualify for the best available products and lowest interest rates and all of that type of thing? And sometimes it's just moving around some balances or what, it could be easy things, right? And then mm-hmm. second of all, Um, From a financial standpoint, do you have assets of your own? Do we need to look into other types of options? Do you know what I mean? How can we save the amount of money that you're going to need for this type of property that you're going to get into and how much needs to be saved every month to be able to get you there? Or maybe you already have have those funds. And then again, income, looking at that income to see if if, if it's somebody who's strictly an investor and then that's all that they do or they're self-employed. You know, and we're before a tax return season that's going to be done. Is there anything that they need to do to make sure that they're prepared and qualify for the type of property that they're looking for? Okay. I love that we mentioned credit, income, and then also what you have in savings. So I want to kind of break down those three. So thinking credit, just even starting there. How much does your credit score really impact what products you have the option for or what interest you would get? How much are those two things really related? It has a huge impact, especially now. So especially if you're looking at the conventional side of things and Fannie or Freddie and they have these loan level price adjustments, everything starts at like a 760 credit score, right? And it's like 20 point increments usually. So between a 740 and a 760, there might be a little bit of an adjustment to the interest rate. 
740 to 720, an even greater one. And then the lower you go, the greater the adjustment in interest rate. So I always tell people to maximize your score. If you can get above a 760 or higher, then you're going to at least know that in the area of credit score, you're not taking a hit to the interest rate. You're going to qualify for the best type of financing when it comes to credit. Is there a credit score that's kind of the no-go where you're just like, there's just not much we're going to be able to do when it comes to putting you in an opportunity of a mortgage? Yeah. So from from an investor standpoint, right, primary mm-hmm. residence is a little bit different. There's a lot more flexibility right. there. But from an investor standpoint, I would say not that it's 100 percent no go under a 700, but it gets a lot more complicated. Right. And it gets a lot right. less cost effective. It's hard to maximize that cash flow on a property with higher interest rates or higher costs up front. So I would say 700 plus should be the definite goal. Right. And when we're investing, we are in a financial space where we want to make sure that we understand our finances well and that we're able to have good credit and that those are things that we're taking into consideration as investors really running a business in a financial sector. Absolutely. You said two words in there that I'm going to ask you to dive a little bit more into. You said Freddie and Fannie. Not everybody is going to understand what you meant by that. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. They're really the agencies that back the loans that we write with a lender, right? So they're like the top of the top when it comes to setting the guidelines for what you need to do or how you qualify for that type of financing. And and they fall under the category of a conventional loan, right? So if you're going to do conventional financing, you have to meet Fannie or Freddie set guidelines. Now, you don't have to necessarily do a conventional loan. There are certainly other types of loan programs that we can look at and other types of programs that don't necessarily even include having to show your income. But sometimes those products, it's like the more flexible they get, sometimes the higher the cost or the higher the interest rate. So we usually with every client are going to go through a process of elimination. What is the your picture as you know the borrower from a credit standpoint, assets, all of that? And then what box can we fit you best into that's going to get you the best deal, but then also make sure that we can come through with financing. Right. And that's something that I talk about a lot in Lady Landlords is we don't necessarily need to complicate things if we don't need to. The more creative we get, which is such a buzzword within real estate investing, creative financing, the more creative we get, really all that means is the higher your fees are going to get, right? Because there's usually a riskier reason that we have to go with those other solutions. So if we could look at and use Fannie and Freddie as kind of those standards for what is going to be the conventional, traditional way, we want to use those requirements to understand where a baseline is going to be because anything else we do right. beyond that is really going to start to have either extra fees on it, higher interest, and it's yeah. really going to kind of cost us more in the long run. So that's why it's so important to really understand the requirements of what's the most traditional, the most conservative, because we're just going to end up growing yeah. from there. Yeah. And sometimes you fit into that conservative box on like the first couple few properties. And then you have to start to go outside the box as you start to build your real estate portfolio. Uh, But it's always a good starting point if you have to start or if you can start there. If not, then we jump to the outside boxes and start looking outside the box to say, how can we make it work? Right. And for a lot of our listeners, a very popular way to get started is house hacking, buying a multifamily property, living in one side, renting out the other. So it's a great introduction to mortgages and loans in general, because they're usually the owner occupied since the person will actually be living there. Yeah. If I I want to buy an investment property, but how do I get into it if I don't have substantial cash on hand, right? 
I hope talking is one of my favorite ways. And if you can at least try to share this information, people can start young enough or when they have that flexibility where they can just move around a little bit. It's such a jump start on life to build that portfolio and that wealth right off the bat. It's super fun. Right. So one of the questions that comes up rather often in our group, and I want to hear our ladies hear it from you. When we live in owner-occupied properties, what does that really mean? What does that get defined as? Because a lot of times it's, well, I can move into this property and you can get that lower down payment, which really can be a barrier to entry for a lot of investors. But there's then that contingency that you have to be an owner-occupied property. So what does that really entail to be an owner-occupied property? So it means that you physically live in that property as your primary residence, your mail is going there, you live there, clothes are in the closet, right? For the first 12 months. So owner occupancy, typically in the mortgage, it's stated that you live there as your primary residence for at least 12 months. So a lot of house hacking will be, you'll live in a property for 12 months and, and maybe it's a multi-unit, right? Those are super fun because you can get rent right off the bat if it's a duplex or something like that. But you live there for 12 months and then you perhaps maybe start to look for your next property that you may move into as another primary residence. So you can qualify for a low down payment on that next property, right? Or maybe this first property has built up enough equity then that you have some capital if you sell it or pull out like a home equity line of credit or something against that property to then get into your next property. And then at the end of those 12 months, is there anything that that person has to notify a mortgage company about saying, okay, I've, I've now satisfied my 12 months. Anything that they have to do to then be able to qualify for another owner-occupied mortgage? No, other than uh, when they're qualifying for the next owner-occupied property, that, that lender, the lender doing that financing on the new property, it may want to see a lease agreement or a rental agreement showing that they are, in fact, renting out the other property if they're not selling it to know that the next one is going to be an actual primary residence. But with regard to the current mortgage on that property, they don't need to notify the lender. As long as they've been there long enough, just make sure you get your mail <laughs> in the right place so that you know to pay that mortgage. Right. Exactly. To make sure that we're always still paying that cost every single month. So we should all yep. know where our mail is going. Sure. That's a very good point. With down payments, that is definitely something that has changed in the multifamily space for owner-occupied over the past couple of years. It was seemed to be very different yeah. before the pandemic as after. Can you just share a little about what that down payment structure looks like in general, kind of across the board for the owner-occupied yeah. properties? Yep. So for owner-occupied properties, this is a new one too that I'm using out of our right now. So one big change that happened, right? So as an owner-occupied property, the down payment has to do with the number of units or the type of property that it is. So if it's a single family home and you're a first-time home buyer, you could qualify for as little as 3% down on that property. If you're a second-time home buyer, if you owned a property in the previous three years, you could qualify for a minimum of 5% down. However, a lot of programs now, if it is a duplex, a two to four unit property on conventional, they would require a 10% down payment. So we've run into this a lot where, especially in this environment with low inventory, um, mm -hmm. you have somebody shopping for a multi-unit property, but they want minimum down payment. So then they want to switch to FHA financing, which is more of a government loan in order to put only three and a half percent down because on a multi-unit, they still have the same minimum down payment requirement. 
But if you're offering on that property and there's multiple offers and it's FHA versus conventional, I'm not saying it's right, but typically a seller might go for the conventional financing over the FHA. However, Freddie Mac, now when we talked about Fannie and Freddie, Freddie Mac's home ready program. So you have to qualify. You have, and the biggest qualifier really is obviously credit. You have to qualify for a conventional loan, but also they have income limits and the income limits are based off of where the property is located. But Freddie Mac's home ready program does allow for a minimum of 5% down on a multi-unit property or two to four unit property as an owner occupant, if you're going to be occupying one side. So that's a little bit about that. There's a lot of factors that go into it. There's not right. just one, the down payment requirement on X, Y, Z, there's, there's a lot to it. Right. But that's good to know that there's an opportunity because yeah. always looking for that 25% is once again, another place that a lot of investors get stuck in between properties. They kind of spent everything on one investment property for the 25% down. And that just sometimes makes that next property difficult. So that house hacking strategy or owner occupied strategy is very important. So it's nice to kind of see that shift and to see some options possibly yes. for some of our members. Now, you said something interesting there about how sometimes with FHA that a seller is going to take a preference over a conventional than an FHA. We see that often with even other types of yeah. loans that might even be a VA or a NACO type loan that still mm -hmm. sellers are going to tend to opt for. The cash makes sense. But when there's still a mortgage on a property between an, an investment conventional loan versus an owner-occupied conventional loan, why are these sellers going for one type of loan over another when they still technically don't get their money or even the down payment money until the closing anyways? Right. Yeah. And it's, trust me, on my end, it's very frustrating. <laughs> we can have great, great buyers. It's a huge misconception, right? I, a lot of it comes down to people, the advice, the mortgage advisor, like myself, educating the real estate agent. And then the, if the real estate agent is willing to take the time, the buyer's agent to educate the listing agent, so then they can educate the sellers, right? But uh, I think overall, the bias is conventional financing is for higher credit scores, um, less risk, less red flags, the easier appraisal requirements where FHA requires the property meet minimum HUD guidelines. So I think in the past, if people got burned by the appraisal not going through completely because there was peeling paint or a hole in the wall or something like that, and then the misconception that FHA is just for lower credit score borrowers and, and then therefore they don't, they're not as good of qualifying. There's, you know, I think they, they see it as the potential for more issues or problems. And so they try to take the safe route of conventional. And the same goes for VA. Yeah, I think I mm -hmm. hear from agents all the time, oh, appraisals with VA are a nightmare. And I'm like, I've never had a major problem on a VA, on a VA appraisal. I think, you know, I think you have to know how to do VA loans. You have to understand all the guidelines. I think it should come down more to the mortgage person that they're working with, not the borrower themselves. Right. That's really interesting because most people feel that it tends to be related to the lower down payment, but it sounds like it's more the possible qualifications of the person getting that type of loan. Once again, saying, well, they maybe don't have as good of a credit score or a different type of income. And then also then the requirements of the appraisal, which has nothing to do with the buyer. Absolutely not. Right. So we talked about credit, but coming back to then savings and income, we have a lot of women in our yes. community that want to be full-time real estate investors. That means that they don't have a W-2. Why is that? 
how can they, one, still get their loans when you're self-employed or when you purely own real estate investment properties? Mm -hmm. And why is that judged so differently than having a W-2? Yeah, I think it's a risk, right? From a lender's perspective, they're looking at the risk of it and a W-2. And I would argue this, like they could quit their job the day after closing, right? Or lose their job. But a W-2 is just more secure. They're employed by a company that's going to pay them as long as they show up for work, right? Where somebody who is either self-employed or a a full-time real estate investor, it's not like guaranteed income, so to speak. So there has to be that history of it to show like, okay, you've proven to us that you can make X amount of money on your tax returns. So therefore then you can qualify. We want that security. No, no, they can obviously pay the loan back, right? But there are programs available for people who don't necessarily have that W-2. We do a lot of like DSCR loans that are looking more at the actual property and the cash flow of the property. If it makes sense and the property is going to cash flow, they'll write the loan. There's, of course, credit requirements and down payment requirements and all of that. But it's great that they're coming up with more programs specifically for investors to help them get into the game. Correct. And for any of our listeners that want to learn more about DSCR loans, Go back, look through the Lady Landlords podcast. We have multiple episodes that really walk through how to use those loans and what qualifications you need to apply for those. But that is great. There's so many different options to make sure that investors, those are self-employed, those that maybe don't have the traditional W-2 are still able to not only purchase a home, even if they're looking for owner-occupied, but then still are able to become investors as well. That brings up another point. One thing that I feel like has also changed since 2020 and the pandemic is how rental income from a property is actually counted towards somebody's income. What are you seeing in the industry being done with that right now? Yeah, I actually think a lot of it's actually loosened up and gotten better. So in the past, particular programs would require that you showed two years of rental income on a tax return before you could use rental income to purchase a property. And that's not necessarily the case anymore. You can purchase a rental property and get a lease on that property, a rental agreement, and use, depending on the program, 70 to 75% and different programs vary, but of what Mm -hmm. that gross rent is going to be as income or to at least wash the mortgage payment to help you qualify for that property. So I share that with people because one now it's like once you can qualify for that first property, um, people are always like, well, how, what's my limit or how many? And I'm like, well, as long as you find great properties that have decent cash flow, like it's really not that hard. And you have the credit and the assets. It's not that hard to qualify. You kind of keep rolling. So I think it's gotten actually a little bit easier. I agree. I feel like pre-2020, I feel like that wasn't really an issue. I totally understand. I think we all can why things got a little bit tight for a few years in there, but I am absolutely noticing the same thing that a lot more lenders, brokers are able to count that rental income back towards that. And that really is setting us up for success to be able to continue to to borrow money to grow our portfolios. If you keep finding cash flowing properties, somebody is going to fund that deal, right? Clearly nobody wants to fund a deal that's not going to cash flow or is not a good purchase, but as an investor, we shouldn't want to be buying those either. When it comes to having those assets or savings, is there any type of like general rule or way that we should think about what we should have in reserves for properties growing forward? What makes your life easier for for us to be able to have? 
That's a great question. And, and a piece that a lot of people, even lenders will forget about. I always say the general rule is if you can have at least six months of reserves, so six months of the PITI total mortgage payment on a property in reserves per property, you'll be pretty well off. You'll be set in terms of meeting that specific qualification. Right. And also then after hearing it from a broker to hear it from another investor, we should probably have that anyways for our properties. You should. Because anytime somebody yes. buys a house, what happens the day after you close? Something breaks. So yes, <laughs> that's definitely something we want to think about. So for both sides, ladies, you heard it here, not only from a broker, but from another investor. It's really important to make sure that yeah. you also have that money earmarked for, for any issues moving forward. We have a lot of members that when we start kind of building these portfolios, start to leverage a lot of the equity that they have in properties. They'll either take out mm -hmm. that line of credit and we could do that from either that primary residence or the investment property. Mm -hmm. Can you share a little about how an underwriter is going to look at that line of credit that we have available if maybe we did or did not borrow it and how that then impacts what our DTI looks like in order to get approved for that loan? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, different programs might vary a little bit, but keep in mind, I love lines of credit. I think they're fantastic. Just way to have access to money. You're not paying interest on it unless you draw on it. But a lender is going to look at that line of credit. And again, depending on the program, often they're going to assume the full line is drawn and what that repayment payment is in order to qualify you for the new loan that you're applying for. Because mm -hmm. technically you could draw it, right? and then you would have that debt and they want to make sure that you're still solvent and, and meet their debt to income ratio. So something to keep in mind if you do have lines of credit that you haven't necessarily full, fully drawn on, we'll see it on a credit report, but it's a great thing to bring up just to make sure it's being included in it. Right. We always kind of hear those stories about, I think this went like viral on either TikTok or Instagram about the woman that opened her Home Depot credit card in order to get like a copy of the key for her house and then had issues, you know, closing. I mean, yeah. very dramatic kind of scenarios. But right. how does it look when somebody is working on their closing and yet is opening a line of credit, possibly with a different financial institution on another property? How will that impact their ability to still be qualified for that loan that they are under contract for moving forward with and kind of already in that process? Yeah, I would just tell people to be really careful. And lenders are like ninjas. <laughs> Our underwriters find the things that I don't even know where they find them. But in all seriousness, when you're taking out a loan to buy this property over here, we basically have a live wire on your credit, right? So if anything is your credit is pulled, even if a balance goes up on one of your accounts, we're going to be notified about it and then we're going to catch it. And it's better to be upfront and honest from the get-go and say, okay, I'm pulling this line of credit and just think chronological, right? Like we only have to count really what you're doing, you're in process with prior to the closing. So if you're buying a new home over here and you're at the same time pulling a line of credit over here from another bank that is going to close prior to the new property, it's good ethics to disclose that so it's included or just wait, right? Close on this first. And then if what you do afterwards, you can do afterward. Right. right. Yeah, we had that exactly. problem. I had that problem a couple of years ago. My husband, who's from the Dominican Republic, we decided to purchase a property down there. We put our down payment on and 
if anybody else listening has ever bought in the Dominican Republic or maybe other places in the Caribbean too, construction can sometimes get a little bit delayed for quite right. some time. Well, that delay was a little over a year. And at that point in time, my oh. husband and I found a fantastic four family here in New mm-hmm. York and we're getting ready to close. And then all of a sudden we had the closing in DR pop up. And I remember my lender here in New York was like, do not close on that property somewhere else until we finish this deal. And there was clearly yes. a very different price point in the properties that we're buying in the Dominican Republic yeah. versus in New York City. Right. Having a four family here, it was a very, very different place. And I remember him just being like, no, like that is just not something. Yeah. Pay the penalty to not be able to close for two more weeks, but you have got to close here on this property before you take any other loan or do anything else in that situation. So that's probably some good advice for even with looking for lines of credit. It also sounds like it's really important to have that communication between you and your lender in general. Yes. I tell people that I'm like your hype guy. I I want you to get this done, right? Like, so I'm not the one to keep secrets from. If you need to charge your credit card, if you're thinking about buying a car or I just had someone like three days before closing, she's like, my brother found me a great deal on this car. And I was like, no, 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 no. Don't do that yet. Right. Tell me because I can help fix it. You know, I'd rather be proactive about it than having to be reactive about it. I had a gal that had to return her engagement ring once in order to close on her house because she bought it on credit and then she didn't qualify for the new loan. So yeah, use us as a sounding board and just bounce things off of us and we'll tell you yay or nay or help guide you through it. Tell you a fun secret. My first mortgage broker scared me so much on our first property that my husband and I literally paid for cash from contract to closing for everything, for absolutely everything. I was so afraid to put anything on my credit card and when we got closer to closing, he was like, well, send me, you know, your updated statements as is always asked. It's always sending statements. Yeah. And he's like, there's yes. nothing on here. And I'm like, I haven't done it. And he was just like, how have you been <laughs> buying food? How have you been buying gas? And I'm like, I was just so afraid because I feel like I've heard so many horror stories about opening these other lines yeah. of credit or, or I didn't know if somebody was going to look at my charges and say, hey, why is she spending this money on this or this money on this? So we were like, that's it. We're just going to use cash. And I am not a cash person. I am definitely the person that I will never have a couple bucks to lend you. I only carry credit cards. Right. And it was a very difficult transition for me to make for those few months. Now, as I've become a bigger investor, that's been something I feel much more comfortable with. But I will never forget on that first property. Yeah. I was like credit cards at home, having to carry cash and looking for coins floating around the bottom of my purse. Yes. But when people are trying to get qualified for a loan, they always worry about shopping loans and what that looks like on a credit report. What's the real truth behind that? Can you really kind of shop for a short period of time? How does that really impact your credit? So let's just be truthful here. (laughs) I have seen, okay, what they say, right? The credit agencies are you're supposed to be able to shop for a certain period of time, 10 days, whatever it is. And if the same industry pulls your credit. So if you're shopping mortgages and they're all mortgage pulls, that it's not supposed to impact your credit score. Have I seen credit scores go down because of several inquiries that were all banking mortgage inquiries on a credit report? Yes, I have. You know, when I'm talking to someone and they're shopping me, I obviously 
I need some information. You know, don't, don't just call me and say, I need your rate. Well, there's a lot of things going to an interest rate. I need some information. But if you have your credit score and you know your debt to income ratio roughly, and you know like your whole scenario, I can get you a rough rate, right? And, and I think just having that conversation with people will help you realize like who is really knowledgeable, who's in this for me to help me get the best deal that I can, but also help me strategize because you want to know what the lowest interest rate is not always the best deal, right? It's not always mm -hmm. in your best interest to take the lowest interest rate. So if you're talking to someone who's explaining that and is sharing strategies, we use, I don't know if you've seen Mortgage Coach, I call it Mortgage Options. I show every client multiple mortgage options side by side. So they feel empowered, they feel educated, they can choose their rate really and their costs. If you're talking to someone like that, then you probably found the right person. That's a great tip. That was actually one of my other questions is what should we be asking mortgage brokers? Because I completely agree with you. A lot of times it just becomes, well, I'm just going to call a bunch of mortgage brokers and I'm just going to say, hey, what's your interest rate? And then I'm just going to pick the lowest, which, and you're right, the lowest yeah. does not mean the best. And also it's not, it's not that simple. What the factor that really yeah. goes into what interest rate would look like. So what are some questions that investors should be asking lenders, brokers, when they are seeing if they would be a good fit to work with? Yeah, I think it's questions, but then also what questions are you being asked, right? So if I'm an investor asking these questions, what is their experience working with investors, the programs that they have available, if they know something specific about themselves, they've done maybe DSCR loans or something like that, like do they offer those and what do they know about them? So you definitely want to pick their brain on just their overall knowledge. But then I think turn the table and say, okay, what questions are they asking me? I'm a big relationship type person. And especially with my investors, they like to work with me because I, I understand their goals and dreams and where they want to be at. And we've strategized and have a plan on how to get there. So if you're not being asked about what are your long-term goals with this property and potentially future properties? Do you want to flip this one? Do you, you know what I mean? And asking the questions to really get to know you and what you're all about. I think that's really important too, because it's a team effort, right? I think as the mortgage advisor, I'm not just here to crunch numbers. I'm here to help you strategize and help you achieve what you want to achieve. And let me be the nerd that does the math on it to help you make, <laughs> to make that happen. So I think it's twofold. Ask the right questions, but then make sure you're being asked as well. I think that's great. And I think one of the things that I personally like to do as an investor is make sure when I find somebody that's going to be a good fit for my team to work with them on multiple deals. And I think that's so important yes. to be able to ask somebody, if somebody did not ask me, what am I really looking to accomplish? What's my longer term plan in this? They would not be a fit for me at all because I would say, great, like I'm not looking for a one and done type scenario. I want somebody that's going to yeah. help make sure I use the right loan product today. So that way, next time I can go and get property two, three, four, five, and I'm not going to get stuck yes. or halted because I picked the wrong product. I see that all the time in lady landlords is that we'll have people that usually end up going out. Women can get that first property, maybe the second property on their own. And then all of a sudden are just halted, are just stuck. And it's usually because they didn't yeah. have the right decisions made at the beginning that now put them in a position where maybe their options are limited and they're just not able to move mm -hmm. forward with really scaling their portfolio. So I think that's great to make sure that you're being asked, well, what exactly are you looking to get to? Because if people don't know the end goal, they can't advise us what to do today because they're not taking yeah. into consideration how that'll impact us in the future. Yeah. So. And it's a lot harder to backpedal than to have the right plan from the get. 
difficult, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's a great question. What can investors do to make your life easier? What should we have prepared when coming to you and having that conversation? Yeah. Your paperwork. <laughs> um, I think you can have, yeah, definitely your paperwork, all of your real estate information. So if you do already own multiple properties, having all of that together in one spot, um, even a spreadsheet is really great with addresses, taxes, insurance, just information on your properties is really, really helpful because then at, we can more quickly at a glance look at this information, but also have kind of thought about where you're at and where you want to be. You know what I mean? Am I just flying by the seat of my pants and I saw a TikTok and I want to I want to get into investment properties and that's okay too, but being right. you know, upfront about that so we can have a conversation and educate a little bit more or just yeah. having a, a clear list of what your questions are and what you are looking to accomplish and your goals is, is really helpful for us. Right. Just having a little bit of structure. I love the idea and I tell people and lady landlords to do this all the time to have like a folder on their computer that has their most recent, you know, pay stubs, W-2s, whatever it may be in one place just for yeah. easy access to make sure that we have all of our financial records in a safe place. That's something we should be doing once again as CEOs of our business here, being entrepreneurs as real estate investors are, we need to really understand our own finances. We need to be looking at those yeah. documents, looking at our numbers and knowing them really clearly. So being organized in that sense will help us in general. But I completely agree. It is so nice I just, I'm actually in contract on another three family here in New York. And I love that I'm able just to shoot over, just share my link because I keep everything on a cloud as we all do these days mm -hmm. and just say love to my it, lender, yeah. like, here you go. Here's all the things that you need. And also know that those things will be updated as I move along because I consistently am doing my bookkeeping accounting. But mm -hmm. besides just numbers, actually making sure that we know a little bit about what we're looking for when we go into that conversation is going to be helpful yeah. to allow you then to guide us to the right place. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Anything else an investor should know when reaching out to work with a broker? I think the biggest thing is just we're on your side, right? I get those phone calls sometimes and people are so afraid to hear no or it's not going to work right now. We're on your side. I am. I want to help. One of my favorite things is helping people achieve goals. And whether that's a primary residence or just buying a house or love working with investors to help them build portfolios and help maybe even expand their dreams a little bit of really how far they can go. So we're on your side. We're here to help. So just let us know what your goals are so that we can help you achieve them. Great. Thank you. And I talk about this all the time in Lady Landlords that we really need to understand what we are working towards, not just from a lending perspective, but to me, the properties are just the vehicle to get me what I really want in my life, right? Especially in our community, we're working towards financial freedom. We're working towards more time for the things that we find passionate in to be able to spend time with our families. It is so important to think about what our end goal is and put everything in line with working in that direction, not just the loan product that we pick, the strategy, the type of property we're buying, the location of the property you're buying. All of those things really need to be aligned. And having a broker that's going to be in line with you, working with you rather than against mm -hmm. you is going to make all the difference when it comes to growing as an investor. So Jennifer, thank you yes. so much for being here today. I greatly appreciate you coming and answering all these questions and breaking down so many myths that just exist around lending. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Of course. 
For all of our listeners, please do make sure to hit that subscribe button so you do not miss another episode of the Lady Landlords podcast. We release new episodes every single Tuesday. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening to the Lady Landlords podcast. If you're feeling stuck in your real estate investing journey, visit lady-landlord.com to book a 15-minute orientation call with me and see if you're ready to join our mentorship program. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter and join our Facebook group for exclusive real estate investing tips and offers. Invest with confidence. Become a Lady Landlord today.